0: Thanks, Natalie. Well, good morning. Welcome uh, to Auckland EV. My name's Rowan. So great to see you here. I'm one of the pastors at EV, and I I really hope that today, as we get to this part of the Bible, we can see with clarity how important this issue is of what is faith and justification. So let's pray together as we come to our great God. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for the joy that it is to know you today, to to come together as your people, uh, to sit under your word, we ask that by your Spirit this morning, you might show us clearly where we attempted to fall into old ways and put before us the amazing news of what you've done for us in Jesus. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Well, do you ever wonder if you've done enough? Do you ever get to that point in your life where you look back over your life and think, Have, have, I, have I done enough? Have I achieved enough? Have I, have I done what I needed to do? <laughs> Do I have enough faith? Have I ever showed enough obedience to my God? Have I have I lived how I ought to live? How can we know if we've ever done enough? How can we be sure? As we get to the second chapter of Galatians, we face the biggest and most important question of life, and it's this: Have I run the race in vain? Have I run the race in vain? It's a question that Paul asks, but it's probably not the way you first thought when you read it in this passage. Paul's just uh, finished explaining throughout chapter 1 of Galatians that his message, his news, the gospel that he brought to the the Galatian Christians was straight from God. It was God's word to him. His message was God's message. There was no question about it. Changing the message that he brought, he'd spoken of, was, was disastrous. It emptied the message of its power as he gets to chapter 2, he asks this question about running the race in vain. Come with me. Galatians chapter 2, verse 1. Then after four years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. I went up according to a revelation and presented to them the gospel I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those recognized as leaders. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running in vain. Now, what's going on for Paul at this point in time? It seems that his concern is to make sure that the work that he'd done for the last 14 years amongst the Gentiles was not a waste of time. Our immediate thought is Paul's going to the big smoke. He's going to Jerusalem. And he's going to go to the big shots and he's going to make sure what he had been saying, what he'd heard from God, that God had given him that direct revelation to him, lined up with what the apostles said. And you're like, okay, Paul's just going to check that everything was straighty 180 and to make sure he's on the right page. As we look closely, that's not why he's going there at all. See, he's just told us that he didn't need any clarification from others. The message he had came from God. In verse 6, he says that the important ones, the the apostles, the pillars of the faith, they added nothing to him. Paul's visit was actually more helpful for the apostles. Look at verse 6. Now, from those recognized as important, what they once were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to me. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised, just as Peter was for the circumcised. Paul's visit to the apostles in Jerusalem was actually for the apostles in Jerusalem's sake, not for his. For they saw what Paul knew. He had been entrusted with the gospel, the true gospel from God. It was giving them confidence, not Paul. So why did he go to see them? Why did he bring this message to them? Why was he concerned about running the race in vain? Well, he'd been sharing this news amongst people who who weren't Jews, who weren't God's chosen people from the beginning, but were from other nations. And he'd been sharing the news about who Jesus is and its application to them. And he wanted to make sure that the Jewish Christians didn't undo the work he'd been doing amongst the Gentile Christians. That as the Jewish Christians shared the news of Jesus and who he was, they didn't just revert people, the Gentiles, back to being Jews. So Paul wants to make sure that his last 14 years of work weren't in vain, that the apostles aren't slipping into thinking that we're saved by Jesus and by works of the law. And that brings us to point number two of our talk, the freedom we have in Christ, because that's exactly what those apostles saw that Paul's gospel was their gospel and that these Gentile Christians who weren't Jews could be Christians. Have a look in verse 4. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus in order to enslave us. But We did not give up and submit to these people even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved for you. For Paul, to run the race in vain would be to undo the freedom we have because of what Jesus has done. We're going to unpack that in a moment. The Jews, you see, they were God's people throughout the whole Old Testament. And they were given the law. Uh, The law is a whole suede of things that God had said of how to live. Come with me and we'll read about the law being given in Exodus 19. It's on the screen. In the third month from the very day the Israelites had left the land of Egypt, they came to the Sinai wilderness. They traveled from Rephidim and came to the Sinai wilderness and camped in the wilderness. Israel camped there in front of the mountain. It's Mount Sinai. Moses went up the mountain to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, This is what you must say to the house of Jacob and explain to the Israelites. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if... You will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant. You will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine. And you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words that you are got to say to the Israelites. And so God spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai and saying, this is who you are to be. You are to follow my words. But then he continued in, 20, in chapter 20. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. And he gave how many commandments? Oh, come on, guys. Ten. That was the awake moment. Right. So not, you shall have no other gods beside me. Do not make an idol for yourself. Don't misuse the name of the Lord. Remember the Sabbath. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not covet your neighbor's house or donkey or ox or anything else they have. Right? The, the, the Ten Commandments that were given, and they're a fantastic set of, of laws, of rules to follow. God gave these rules to the Israelites to live God's way, and they're a fantastic set of rules. It wasn't just the Ten Commandments that they were given in this law. The book of Leviticus goes through to outline the good way God's people are to live. There was laws around food, no bacon and seafood. Which I never understood why, but hey, there you go. There was laws around purity, what was clean and unclean. In all, there were 613 laws for the people to keep. Now, the law was good. God gave it to his people to show them that they were to be different from the nations around them. That, that, that's what holy means, to live as a, as a separate people, people who are different, God's people. The nations around them were to look at these, these Israels, these, these Jews, and say that they are a people who are different, who are living for someone else. And, and these laws basically form the basis of most of our legal system today. You hear those Ten Commandments and you start thinking, this feels kind of right. We've been so shaped by this good system that God gave these Jews in the Old Testament. But the consistent refrain throughout the Old Testament was that people failed to obey God's law. People couldn't do it. There was nothing wrong with the law. The law was good. The issue was with the people. Moses isn't even down from the mountain when the people of Israel have said, yes, Moses, you go, you hear what God wants to say and you bring it back to us. They go and build a calf and start worshipping God through an idol. And Moses isn't even down from the mountain yet. You know, At day one, there's failure. It's not even the wedding ceremony is not even over. And Israel have gone off to worship another God. Pretty much the whole Old Testament is just a story of people's rejection of God. They fail to obey God. They fail to obey God. God um, forgives them and says, come back. And then they fail to obey Him again and again and again. The Old Testament has this repeating refrain. God is good. His law is good. People are not. We fail. And we kind of get that, don't we? There's a little part of each of us that understands that we aren't perfect. We don't do what we even think we ought to do, let alone what God thinks we ought to do. We aren't right. You just got to have a look at children to understand that, right? I have. I mean, who in this room? Can you put your hand up? Who in this room has spent time encouraging children to disobey them? Has anyone here spent time encouraging kids to be disobedient? Anyone? Right. But they are. I and mean, there might be some uncles, aunties going here. Yeah, Those <laughs> grandparents. Where are you? Chocolate. Right. Just it's the reality that children come out of the womb and they're just disobedient from day one because they're like their father and their mother. We do not give birth to perfect children that then get corrupted. That view is so twisted. We know that. We give birth to flawed children. And your aim as a parent is to help them to grow, to express those imperfections less and less. And as Christian parents, as they become more like Jesus and keep trusting in Him. We know that we are flawed. We recognize that. We see it in children. We see it in ourselves when we don't do what we ought to do. God gives this religious system to show we cannot keep the law. We cannot keep the law. But when Jesus came, and the message that Paul spoke was the news of Jesus, he did what no other Jew had ever done. He kept the law, the entire law. He's the only perfect Jew, the one Jew who has done exactly what God had asked And that's the message that Paul and the other apostles proclaimed to the ancient Near East. Because of Jesus' obedience, because he didn't reject God in any way, shape or form, because he was perfect, we no longer need to be enslaved to the law to do what it says. We no longer have to match up to what the law requires. Our perfect obedience is no longer required because Jesus offered his. He fulfilled the law and therefore freed us. From having to obey it because he'd done it himself. If you want to think more about that, come tomorrow night. Because we'll be unpacking that very thing about the law and how it applies and our going deeper. But that's what Jesus had come to do, to free us from the law. Now people heard that and, and they accepted that. And that is how the news of the gospel spread throughout the ancient Near East. But then a natural progression begins. That's point number three in your outlines. See, we naturally fall back into thinking that we need to do something in order to be forgiven. It's just human nature. We naturally fall back into going, I need to do something. I need to be good enough. I need to be um, sufficient for what has happened to me. And that's why every other religion in the world falls back on doing things. Islam talks about you need to make sure you pray five times a day, make sure you need to give, you have a pilgrimage to Mecca, you fulfil Ramadan and have a public profession. Those five pillars of Islam are all about what you do. Uh, Buddhists, the five noble truths of Buddhism that lead to an eightfold pathway to reach Nirvana. Every world religion bar one is about what we do to be right with the deity that exists. Every single one bar Christianity. Because we have this natural progression to thinking, I need to contribute. It's the same thing when you're out for dinner with friends and one of you goes to pay and says, I'll take it. And the other one's like, no, I want to pay as well. And you're there because we want to contribute. We don't like being indebted to anyone. As we saw last week, some people came amongst the Christian Galatians and even the Christians in in Jerusalem. People came amongst them trying to get people to add to the work Jesus had done. To say, yes, Jesus was the perfect Jew. He fulfilled the law. He'd done this in your place. But you still need to live as a Jew. Trust Jesus and live like a Jew. Do all the Jewish laws that were there from the Old Testament. They were called the, the Judaizers. And they came in to say, you need to keep living as a Jew. And particularly, the symbol of circumcision, which symbolized the whole lot of those 613 laws of the Old Testament, was the thing that they were saying. You need to be circumcised. You need to express this sign of what it was to be a Jew, the sign that was given to Abraham that was clearly identifying the Jews as God's people. Paul calls them the circumcision party. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was going to go to a party, that's not the type of party I'd want to go to. (laughs) But that's what they're called, the circumcision party. And if you think about it, they're going, yeah, what we want to do is to go back to our old ways so that they've recognised they've got freedom in Christ. Jesus has fulfilled the law, but we still need to be circumcised. And I'm like, that's going a long way. That's doing a lot of effort. I reckon if we had that today, we wouldn't be as religious. <laughs> we am like, oh, I'm not going to do that. No way, I'm going to line up. It's not the sort of party I'm going to. And so here, they come amongst them, and you can see the desire to go, no, I need to go back to what we were, to this Jewish custom. Do you see how naturally we return to thinking our freedom is something we earn, rather than what God has done? So much so, Paul tells us, that Peter, the apostle, gets caught up in this whole thing. Look at verse 11. But when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Paul, it's not mincing words, is he? For he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. So in other words, Peter got it. Peter got the gospel. He was the one who had the vision that said that all the food laws, that all fine, bacon is now on the plate. We can eat bacon, which is great. I had some this morning. I felt great preaching this passage, eating bacon. is an important thing to do because we're free, right? We don't need to obey these laws. Uh, Peter got that. He had the vision. He was the one that saw, yes, all food is clean. Um, Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament laws. He, he got it 100%. And he regularly ate with the Gentiles. That, was, that used to be unclean if you were a Jew, but now he's, he's doing that. He's going, yeah, this is free because we're free. Jesus has done it for us. However, look what he says at the second half of verse 12. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. Then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. One thing that we must see extraordinarily clearly today is how easy it is to fall back into thinking we can do things for God that we need to contribute to our salvation, that we can somehow do something that pleases God, that we can secure our salvation by being a good person, by doing good things, by following God in certain ways. It is so tied into who we are. So easy is it that even Peter, the apostle, one of Jesus' closest followers, gets caught up. The effects of this are devastating. It empties Jesus' work. It says that Jesus' work on the cross, that his life was not good enough. He is not the perfect substitute. I need to do something as well. I need to fulfill these these parts of the Old Testament law. I need to do things. And it says that I'm good enough, just a little bit. I can add something to Jesus. I remember once sitting down with some Mormon friends that were visiting and we were reading through the Bible together. They said the Bible was their authority. And so I'm like, great, well, let's read through that together. And we're reading through Romans and we got to the bit about that we've been saved by Jesus. And I said to them, do you believe that Jesus paid the price for us, that he died in our place? And they're like, yeah, yeah, totally. And I said, so so what can I do? What do I need to do in order for that to apply to me? And they said, well, you've got to do these good works. So I'm like, so Jesus didn't totally pay the price. He kind of 99% did it, and then I've got to add the the last percent. Is that right? And they went, yeah, that's it. I'm like, no, no, that's not it, because I can't add anything. I'm not good enough. You and I know that. We reject God. We We reject our own ways, let alone God's ways. Friends, see how destructive this is adding to the gospel. It says Jesus didn't do it all. It puts the weight back on us to fulfill the law of which, what is it, 1500 years of church history of the Old Testament shows us is not possible. The only one who's done it is Jesus, and there is only one. As a side note, we also need to recognize how easy it is, even for leaders amongst us, to stray into things that aren't true. Leaders are not above mistakes. Barnabas and Peter, kind of foundations of the New Testament church, they fall into this. And that's why here at EV, the Bible is our authority. Not what the preacher says or the kind of leadership team says, but we sit under the Bible. Now, yes, there is an authority given to leaders to help us understand what the Bible is saying. But the Bible is our ultimate authority that we need to sit under. We need to test everything against. Friends, keep testing what you believe and how you live by God's word, by the gospel that was given to Paul and to the apostles and is spread across the whole earth that we have recorded in the scriptures. So there in front of them all, Paul corrects Peter because of what's at stake he says, no, 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 you got this earlier. Why are you now slipping back? Why? Because of your fear of what others think and your ideas for coming and doing what is just what you used to be doing. Have you slipped back into thinking that we can add anything? And that's when Paul speaks of what Jesus has done in a theological term called justification by Jesus. That's point number four. Justification by Jesus. Look at verse 15. We are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And yet, because we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we ourselves have believed in Jesus Christ. This was so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because the works, because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. Okay, fantastic sentence there. Fantastic to understand the heart of the gospel, the heart of Christianity. If you've come this week on this long weekend and you didn't go away, well done. Here's a treat. Spending our time in this little section here about what Paul is saying to Peter and understanding the heart of the gospel is justification by Jesus. Now, what is justification? It's a big word. It kind of gets branded around. It's helpful to know what it is. It's really from the legal court realm. Uh, where uh, imagine you went before uh, a judge in a courtroom, you've been accused of doing something wrong, evidences are spoken of, and then a judge decides whether you're justified or not, whether you did anything wrong or not. And the judge gives this legal pronouncement of justified. That means, no, you didn't do it, it's fine, you're clean, it's as if you've done nothing. My little memory hook was just as if I'd never sinned. Justified, just as if I'd. If you don't know that, use it. If, you, if you've known it for years, just moan. There you go. So, so it says that I'm, I'm legally declared right. Uh, a friend of mine uh, from Sydney uh, had lived a rough life before he became a Christian around about the age of 16 and 17. He, he kind of mixed in with the wrong crowd. And he'd done some stuff that got him a legal record. Uh, he'd gotten in trouble with the police. Uh, and around 16, 17, he'd become a Christian. And decided to throw that life away and trust in Jesus and serve him. Uh, And so then he he kept kind of living that way, but he kind of looked a bit of a shady character. Uh, And then in his early 20s, he was waiting for a friend outside a flat. Now, Now what you need to know at this point is in Australia, once you turn 18, your legal record is wiped clean. Now, anything you've done before the age of 18 is sealed, and you can't can't get that back. It's it's as if you've never done it. It's as if you've you've been justified. You've never done anything wrong. So my friend's sitting in his car outside a flat um, in a pretty shady area of town, and he's got an eye infection, so he's wearing sunglasses. Sitting in his car, window down, shady area of town, when this police car goes past, kind of looks at him, sees him just sitting there waiting, no one coming out, swings back around, the police come up, knock on the window. They're like, oh, uh, you know, like to see a driver's license, sir. Uh, he pulls out his license and they said, look, do you have any previous convictions? And at that moment, he could look at the policeman's eye with a smile and say, no, not a thing. Even though he had, he'd been justified. It had been wiped clean because he had no legal convictions. His criminal record was washed clean. That is what it means to be justified. It's declared right in the eyes of the law, not by anything you've done necessarily. And that's the second concept that we've got to understand, this idea of works of the law. Works of the law. What what are works of the law? Works of the law are the obedience to those 613 laws. No one will be justified by following the law of Moses. Our attempts to locate God's approval in what we do is totally a dead end, because we can't. Works of the law is going back to living the right way, and no one has lived rightly. Paul tells us in Romans 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands God. There is no one who seeks God. For we have all turned away from Him. Paul's saying there is nothing we can do to add to what Jesus has done. Not following the law, not doing a thing. Now for us today, I don't think circumcision is our stumbling block. I don't think that's the thing that we get caught up on. Should we circumcise people or not? But there are all sorts of things that we get caught up on that we try and add, I think, to the Christian faith. Whether that be you know, um, doing really good things, making sure I don't sin, that, that means God's somehow more pleased with me. Or, or perhaps um, going along to connect group and saying, well, if I go to connect group, that's, I've, I've got to make sure I'm in a connect group, otherwise really I'm not going to be saved. Or maybe I've got to go to a church or a different type of church, a certain type of church that believes a certain type of thing. Or perhaps it's, it's a view on on Baptism. They're good things, these things, like connect groups and church and baptism. But the moment we say that baptism is required to be a Christian is the moment we add something to the law, sorry, something to the, to the gospel. We say that Jesus died for us, and the Bible holds out that baptism is a symbol. Now, there's, there's questions around whether baptism should be applied for uh, the adult or for the infant, and there's different views on that. There'll be different views on this room. Um, there's a little Booklet on the bookstall that you can grab to show you why I'm right that infant baptism is okay. And you can read that um, and see, but you'll see that there are issues both ways, but it's not something that we need to divide over. But the moment you say that no, you must be baptized in order to be saved, well, the whole gospel has gone out the window because it's no longer what Jesus has done at the cross, it's something that I have done myself. I was looking at the website of a church, I won't say which church, but a church here in Auckland this week that someone had put me in touch with, uh, and They'd said in that that um, the way that we are saved is by Jesus' blood being poured out for us. And that Jesus' blood was somehow mixed with the water. When Jesus died, the water and the blood poured out. And so the way to apply Jesus' blood to us is to be baptized, because that's the only way that his blood can get to us. And so baptism, therefore, is required. At that moment, I'm like, no, You've you've just added to the gospel. You said I must be baptized in order for that to be applied to me. I must actually go and do this thing. It's not all that Jesus did. It's all that Jesus did and then me coming and actually doing this thing, this symbol. The simple maths is this, and it's worth writing down. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Nothing. As soon as you add something to the work that Jesus has done, you empty him of what he's done and you put the burden back on us to be good enough for him. What does justification by Jesus mean for us? Well, it's incredible. It means that because of what Jesus did, because of him leading a perfect life and him taking my place, I am as righteous, I am as as perfect, as if I'd fulfilled the law, as Jesus. When God looks at me and sees my good works, he smiles. When God looks at me and sees my sinfulness, he smiles. Because he doesn't see me. He sees Jesus. The reality for those who trust in Jesus is that God sees what Jesus did. Jesus died in our place. He lived the perfect life, died in our place, rose again, and so God sees what he has done. His life is credited to us, just as if I'd never done anything wrong, just as if I was Jesus. Do you know how great that news is? How freeing that is. No longer do I have to try and keep up to do, 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 but it is done in Christ. Finished. Psychologists tell us today, and there's lots of pages spent on this, that we can't validate ourselves as humans. We need something, someone outside of ourselves to help us get our value That's why you feel encouraged when someone tells you that you've done a good job or that they love you because you're like, oh, wow, other people think this. It's actually good for us. Do encourage one another. It's helpful. We need it. But often we we go and seek the approval of others when rather it's the approval of God that we need. (laughs) See, we're built to be approved, but not just by one another. We're built to be approved by God. And what justification tells us, what Jesus' life, his perfect life tells us, is that we have been approved. That as God looks at us now, that we are seen as Jesus. It shows us that we are worse than we can ever imagine, because our deeds deserve death. We can't live up to the law. We need a perfect Jew. We need the perfect Jesus to die in our place but also shows us that we are more loved than we ever dreamed because God the Son came and died in our place and gave his life for ours in the best exchange the world has ever seen. Our deepest need is for the approval only Jesus can give. That is why we proclaim this message to the world around us. The deepest need people are looking for is the approval that only Jesus can give to recognize that our debt has been paid in full and that Jesus' life has been offered to us. I get a little sense of it every time I use my FBOS card. You know, you go to the thingo and you put it in and you put in your pin and, and then the thing comes up and you're waiting. And what will it say? Will it go declined? Bah. Oh, looks like I haven't paid it off this month. Or will it say approved? Every time it says approved, I go, thank you, Jesus. Not only was there money in my bank account, but you gave your life for me. You can use that. I hope you recognize then, church, that Christianity is not a place for perfect people. That church is not a place for perfect people. It's a place for broken and flawed people, people who can't do what we ought to do. Church is like Alcoholics Anonymous for sinners. That's what it's like. Alcoholics Anonymous, the place where you go through that 12-step process to recognize that you have an addiction to alcohol and you want to try and stop that addiction and so you have support from one another... So church is a place where you go, recognizing that I am hell-bent on sin. I keep falling back to my own brokenness and flawed ways, and, and I can't live perfectly, but Jesus did it for me. It's not now about me being perfect in order to earn my salvation, but recognizing that it's been done in my place. Maybe the introduction, we should introduce one another with at church, is, hi, my name is so-and-so, and I'm a sinner, but I'm saved by Jesus. Jesus died for me. On my own I am powerless to sin. I keep going back and back and back. But one of the greatest joys I have in life is knowing that Jesus went to the death for me. He gave me his perfect life so that I could be forgiven. So friends, stop pretending you have life altogether. We've got to stop pretending that we, we don't sin, that we have that we're all clean and squeaky and we, we don't do anything wrong. We're going to stop being shocked when we recognize that someone said something that was, that was harsh or bad and recognize, yep, I'm a sinner too. We need to be a place where we can be like, oh, how great it is to be real, to be warts and all, to go, yep, I don't have life together. This is the freedom the gospel brings. It's one of the great joys of Christian community is knowing that we're all broken sinners. We all deserve death and judgment and, and separation from God's goodness forever. But because of nothing we have done and everything Jesus did, we could be forgiven. One of the great joys of Christian community is to look around and go, you're not alone. This room is filled with ugly, rotten sinners just like me and you. So There's no need to pretend. We can go, yeah, let's now come to Jesus and be so thankful that he's died for us. As you struggle with sin, as you you share the, the power sin has over you, What a joy it is to go, yes, but as God looks at me, he sees Jesus. The question for us is, and the question I have at this point, how is it that Jesus' work could be applied to me? How does that happen? How is it that Jesus could die and live this perfect life and die in my place and then that be seen as my life? How did that exchange happen? Paul tells us, point number five, that happens through faith in Jesus. It happens through faith. Look at verse 16. A person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, here's what we've got to understand what faith is. We think, the world around us says, faith is like just taking a blind step, not knowing what's out there and just kind of jumping. I really want to do it, but I know what'll happen. It'll hurt. Um, and, and so faith is shutting your eyes to the evidence and believing something crazy. And that's what faith is. Or perhaps a little bit better view might be that the world has, that faith is really knowledge, it's it's knowing. If you have faith in someone, you kind of know, you trust them, you know them, you know about them. And so lots of people come to Christianity and go, oh, I believe Jesus died on the cross. I believe he, he, he rose again. I believe those facts, but it doesn't affect me. It makes no difference to me. Uh, put your hand up if you've ever flown on an airplane love to kind of see what sort of numbers. Nice and strong. Okay, so a large proportion of us. Okay, so I want to show you that you've all had faith. <laughs> because at the moment you got on that plane, the airline, they checked that you were who you were. Like, they got your little passporty thing and your, your, your details there. Um, but did you check who the pilot was? Put your hand up if you've ever checked the credentials of the pilot of a plane you've flown on. Okay, well, there's one guy. Yeah. <laughs> Two. One, one Air Force and mechanic. <laughs> See? You have little faith. No, no, no. Right? So, so we trust people. We put our lives in the hands of people that we don't know quite often. But it doesn't matter how much faith we have when we get on the plane. You could have checked them out. You could have checked all the mechanics on the plane. You could have done all that work. What matters is the reliability of the plane to get you from point A to B. Right? Your faith doesn't get you from, say, you're going from Auckland to Dubai. You can't just get there on faith. You can't be like, I'm going to faith it there. <laughs> what, what are you faithing in? What are you trusting, relying, depending in? No, your, your, your faith, your trust, your reliance, your dependence to get you to Dubai from Auckland is on the plane. You need to have faith in the plane, on the trustworthiness of the plane. What gets you there is the plane. So it is with Jesus. Faith in Jesus is, is really trusting that Jesus has done the work for you. Like getting on that plane and sitting on that seat, then the plane does the work and takes you all the way to Dubai, and all you do is sit there and complain that it has slow internet. But the plane does it for you. It takes you there. It does something that you couldn't do on your own. Now, lots of people come to Jesus and they say, I have faith in Jesus. Jesus, I'm going to follow Jesus. He's my example and my leader, and so I'm going to follow him. But you apply that to a plane. I love this plane. It's going to get me to Dubai. I'm going to follow it there. So you get there on the runway, and it takes off, and you're like running down the runway. I'm following the plane. I know where it's going for about a minute, and then it disappears. And you can't. Following Jesus is not enough. You need to be in the plane. You need to be in Jesus, united to him. Lots of people say, oh, I'm covered by what Jesus did. I'm under the plane. I'm under Jesus. Well, that's great. You could strap yourself to the bottom and be under it for a bit as it takes off, and under his cover, and then the plane takes off, and you die in the sky. You're not covered under Jesus. For the benefits of Jesus' life and death and resurrection to be applied to us, we need to be in the plane. We need to trust him and so put our lives in his hands. What does it mean to be in the plane called Jesus? It means to say, I'm going to trust that on that final day, on judgment day, when I come before God in the court of of God's courtroom and all my deeds are shown and I'm found guilty, that my only hope is that Jesus stands up and says, paid for. I died for him. He trusted me. He, he saw who I was and put his life in my hands. And I say, I'm with him. I'm in him. I'm united to him by faith. Paul calls that union with Christ. Look at verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ and no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith, by trust, reliance and dependence in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I have been crucified with Christ. Do you see how powerful that is? Jesus died my death. The death that I deserve for not living to the law of God, for not living God's way rightly, that I should deserve death and judgment and hell. Jesus did. He's given me his perfect life, but he's taken my rotten life. Why? Because I've been united to him. If you trust in Jesus, you can say your death's already happened. The judgment of God on your life has been extinguished because Jesus paid it all. It's happened at the cross. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer my life, but Christ lives in me. For those that are trusting in Jesus, you are united to him. You're in the plane. And so what you can say of the plane, you can say of you. It's kind of like a child in the womb of its mother. The destiny of the mother is the destiny of the child. What she eats, the child eats. Where she goes, the child goes. So to those who are in Christ. Except all the benefits that he has won for us are applied to us just by saying, I can't do this. You can. I trust you. This Thursday is the 75th anniversary of D Day. Don't know if you knew that. The Allied invasion of German occupied France on the beaches of Normandy happened, trying to end World War II. It was the largest seaborne invasion in history. And one of the best depictions of that event is the movie um, Saving Private Ryan. How many people have actually seen Saving Private Ryan? Okay, it's going to change tonight, I'm pretty sure, but good. Saving Private Ryan is loosely based on the true story of a family who lose their three sons out of four on basically the same day at war. This mum, the war office realised that the mother is going to receive a telegram on the same day, not just one, but three telegrams on the same day, saying three of her sons out of four are dead. And at that moment, they go, man, we can't let the fourth die. So they start up this special task force to go and find the fourth son on the front in Normandy, on the battlefield, and bring him back so that the mother doesn't lose all of her children in this one war. So the rest of the movie is about the lengths that the team go to to save Private Ryan, the fourth son. And there's this great scene where the captain of this task force sent to save Private Ryan is standing there trying to evaluate the cost, What is the cost-benefit of saving this one guy, Private Ryan? I'll quote him. He says, this Ryan better be worth it. He'd better go home and cure some disease or invent the long-lasting light bulb or something. (laughs) And the question throughout the whole film of Saving Private Ryan is, is Private Ryan's life worth it? Is it worth the cost? Will his life be worthy of the lives that were spent trying to purchase his freedom, And it's clear that throughout the whole movie, Private Ryan struggles with this as well. Why me? I've not done anything special. The military's just chosen to rescue me at great cost to those who would try and rescue him. It's a fantastic parallel of what Jesus did for us. He died to rescue people who did not deserve it. He gave his life, the eternal son of God. He took what we deserve so we could be free as the beaches of Normandy were stained red with blood, so the foot of the cross where God's son was red with the blood that brings us life. And in the final scene of the movie, the captain who led the team to rescue Private Ryan gets shot. And as he's there bleeding in these final scenes of of the movie, he's just secured Ryan's freedom. He pulls Private Ryan into his face, looks in his eyes, and with his dying words, he says with his dying breath, these words that will plague Private Ryan's life for the rest of his life. He pulls him close, looks in his eyes as he's dying and says, earn it. Earn it. Thank God they weren't the final words of Jesus. Thank God that we weren't left to make something of ourselves. Thank God that the final words of Jesus on that cross as he took my death and as he took your place and mine is not that we need to earn our faith or we need to do more or to be good, but three sweet words said to us, it is finished. The debt has been paid, the perfect life has been offered. Jesus' words on the cross release us from the guilt and shame of what we have done and they free us from the crushing burden to contribute in any way to what Jesus did. The scene then pans and Saving Private Ryan to the very end where Private Ryan is standing there as an aged man with his family and his long-lived wife by his side and his whole family at the captain who died for him's grave. And he addresses the cross with these words, I've tried to live my life the best I could. I hope that was enough. I hope that at least in your eyes, I've earned what you've done for me. Friends, the cross of Christ and the gospel of Jesus leaves us in no doubt or desperation as to our position before God on the final day. Our hope is in Jesus and his work at the cross. You need not worry if you've been good enough to justify his sacrifice. You know, like Private Ryan, you haven't been good enough to justify God the Son dying in your place. But if your hope is in Jesus, you can know that Jesus was good enough. And in his death, you stand with him. It's finished. Nothing more is required. No more do I need to be under the burden of the law. No more do I need to be trying to earn my way to God. All that is left to say to our God is, thank you. Thank you for what you have done for me. Friends, we need to preach this truth to ourselves. Oh, we know it, but we need to keep preaching it to us because it will change the way we live. It will free you to apologize without a but because Jesus has justified you. It will allow you to welcome feedback without being defensive because your identity does not depend on what you do and how much you contribute, but what Jesus has done for you. It will allow you to love all sorts of people without having to be loved back because you've seen the love of God at the cross and you don't need that, you've got it given for you. As relationships break down, you'll be broken-hearted but not devastated because you have a future, because the future is secure. You don't have to feel overwhelmed by shame when you haven't got life altogether because you know that, that in the cross you've been offered Jesus life and God sees him. You don't need to be a workaholic as if your life depended on it. You can be vulnerable with people without the fear of their rejection. You don't need to live a life of lying to cover up embarrassment. There are so many ways that we can stand forgiven, freed from the burden of having to be good enough for God. The question for us at the end of our life will be, have you run your life in vain? What does that look like? Trying to earn your salvation, trying to earn your freedom, trying to think you could be good enough for God, for that will be in vain, for the answer is there is only one who is good enough for God, and that is Jesus. So all that's left to ask today is this, are you free? Have you placed your life in the hands of Jesus who died for you? And if you are, are you trusting him to the end, living with that freedom for his glory? Let me pray. Father God, thanks so much for your word today. Thank you for the clarity that comes through justification by faith. We're so thankful that the, the massive weight of our sin and our rejection and our rebellion does not lie on us, but has been placed on Jesus. We ask that as we think through our lives, you'd show us areas where we're trying to add to what Jesus has done. And help us, Lord, not to think that there's anything we can contribute towards our salvation, towards you choosing us. And that you would give us a deep sense of your love shown at the cross. Help us to trust you, not ourselves, for all you have given us. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.